0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. I'm David Kimura and today on our panel we have John Epperson. Hello. And Luke Sutters, Hi. And today we are talking with a special guest, Ivan Nymchenko.
1: Hi guys, thanks for inviting
0: Yeah, so do you mind telling us a bit about who you are, some of the things you're working for and all that good stuff?
1: Oh, of course. These days I'm freelancer, uh, also consulting from time to time. But uh, I used, I started to use Ruby and Rails in 2006, and since since then I was doing a lot of different stuff. I was an owner, a co-founder of two agencies, organizing conference, speaking a lot, and all the different stuff.
0: Awesome. Are you stuck at
2: home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled? Are you wondering where to hear your JavaScript heroes like Amy Knight and Douglas Crockford and Chris Heilman? After the cancellations, I decided to put on a JavaScript conference for you online. I invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you. Go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule. The conference is on May 14th and 15th. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. jsremoteconf.com
0: So what have you been up to lately?
1: Just some freelancing, some consulting, also a decent amount of teaching, of course.
0: And we had you come on to talk about one of the talks that you gave at RubyConf called Less Abstract Surprising Effects of Expressing Rules in or of Object-Oriented Programming.
1: Yeah, in a visual way. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, In pictures. In pictures, right. Would you mind giving
0: us a highlight overview of that talk?
1: Sure. The whole thing started uh, as a conversation I guess a year ago at another conference in St Petersburg and me and some other people who are also involved in teaching uh, Rubyists, we were we had a discussion that sometimes it's very hard to explain some abstract concepts to the newcomers and there was one rhetorical question which was said uh, it sounded like Uh, Wouldn't it be great if we could illustrate, let's say, dependency injection with just one picture and so that everyone can understand it and understand it in the correct way? (laughs) So, yeah, that was just a rhetorical question, as I said. But later, uh, when I was teaching another pack of students and I was drawing pictures to them and those pictures were like pictures of little dudes. And those picture were meant to be classes, so I was explaining OOP to them. And then I uh, I recalled this question, and I thought, what could be like the next steps to illustrate more stuff of the OOP in a visual way? And I started drawing like uh, arms to those dudes, and I thought, all right, uh, let's those arms uh, express methods in our code, and then and more and more and more. And uh, I I managed to develop some kind of uh, visual language to express uh, what's going on in your code. So yeah, something like this.
3: I mean, your pictures are awesome. Um, Thank you. Did you come to
1: a conclusion, did you measure that this works? So in my talks, I was just excited that it all makes sense Despite of the fact that it's it's still all weird, and I was excited about it and wanted to present this to basically to show that, Uh, but I think it it was helpful for me uh, in several ways. First of all, I was able to explain some concepts of OOP to my students. Secondly, uh, I was using it in my uh, freelancing projects as well, so I found it useful when you have some complex uh case where you don't know how to model it correctly or you just have some complicated set of classes when you're solving some specific problem what i did is that i let let's say i I had five or six classes and i didn't like the design so i just decided to draw all of them in using this visual language and from that i started gaining like insights that like this, uh, this method is duplicated in, in several places and, uh, and so on and so on and so on. So, yeah, it was useful in, in my practice as well. But I'm not sure uh, how, to, how to share it uh, with more people and how to make it uh, more useful. But, yeah, I had some attempts in that as well.
4: I thought it was a really interesting idea because uh, a lot of people can do it, you know, just kind of uh, passing the uh, dependencies uh, as arguments. But they don't really have an understanding of it, and I think getting that visual model in your head really goes a long way. Did you did you find that the uh, people reacted
1: well to it? Yeah, people usually like it a lot because it's a very surprising way of thinking about the code for them. So. Uh, yeah, people re- are really excited, but I don't think many of them find it very practical so far.
4: I assume it's your drawing of the Rails Mountain, the Mountain of Learning Rails. Yeah, this is a uh, yeah. I wish you should tell about it. Um, yeah, uh, this this is a really interesting thing. Uh, what is at the top? What is at the top of the Rails Mountain?
1: So I would say it's not a Rails Mountain. It's a cycle. Uh, of not a cycle, but uh, well, let's say life cycle of every Rails developer. So uh, it's it's also another model I developed for another talk uh, in Ukraine, and uh, I simply spotted that many of Ruby developers go through the same steps, and uh, I was on many of them as well. So the first step when when you love uh, Rails, when you believe in Rails way, and uh, you you just fell in love. Then later on, you start getting some problems, and you fix them with, with some magic. And after like several attempts to fix uh, stuff with magic, you might get disappointed in Rails way, and then you switch to another step where you start learning about all the alternative approaches, like Solid, Dryer B, I don't know, Trailblazer, Service Objects, and so on. And well, of course uh, patterns then uh, you can of course find your like spot where you feel comfortable because like your projects of a, of a specific si- uh, size or, or like you just found your way of managing complexity in web applications but many people they decided all right something is wrong with the uh, ruby something might be wrong with the uh, with the way we develop uh, applications and they started to leave and they decided that they, they should try other uh, languages other approaches and this is step 3 and step 4 like the final the top of the mountain is when you manage to learn from all those approaches in different ecosystems and you well on the on the top level it's actually, it actually doesn't matter for you what technology you you use but you can return to Ruby and you can return to Rails with all this knowledge and you've broken the matrix. So now you, now, now you know how to do stuff. So that's the, the final step.
0: Yeah, I think for me, getting up to that matrix is broken place, it originally came from me learning Rails before I learned Ruby. That was probably one of the biggest mistakes that I made. I just dove right into Rails without understanding how Ruby classes worked, how to create true uh, plain old Ruby objects. And so I would have super fat controllers with super fat models. Things were not maintainable. They were not manageable. I had zero unit tests on my old applications. And... I thought that, man, Rails isn't really all that intuitive. It's not all that great. So it really was, hey, maybe I'm just a bad programmer, which is kind of down in your Rails disciple way. So for me, it was getting up to that peak of the mountain by actually learning Ruby, picking up on some Ruby techniques like memoization or just creating Ruby objects instead of just relying what just Rails provides. So becoming a better Ruby developer made me understand a lot more and become a better Rails developer, essentially.
4: Do you think that people hit that stage faster with Ruby and Rails because it's so good at accelerating you through the early stuff?
0: For me, I I would say no. I was a pretty horrible developer for a long time. <laughs> uh, mostly because I was just trying to do things by myself, I wasn't including other people in my work, and that inherently limited me on what I was able to do
3: so Yvonne, I feel like I'm seeing a pattern here that you are taking these abstract concepts and putting them into pictures, and for the most part, like you seem to be getting good reception of it, like I myself am connecting with this kind of stuff. I feel like it's kind of analogous to you know that. Maybe that one dude that you know that like maybe makes good analogies all the time kind of thing. I feel like it's kind of like that. Like uh, That kind of a person tends to be able to, it, maybe it's a skill of a teacher. I, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, but I feel like there's something here, which is I think what you're coming to tell us. they like, hey, maybe I don't have a system. I haven't measured it yet, but, but here's the beginnings of one. Is that well, where you feel like you are in the process or do you feel like you're further along?
1: So yeah, I do uh, I do a lot of teaching and uh, like a a lot of my relatives are teachers. So I I have some some something, uh, something like this. And yeah, these these things I'm talking about here and there. They are kind of a part of a bigger system that I have in my mind. And also, I've tried to to write a book. It should called Painless Rails. But yeah, it's already two years after I started writing it. And right now it's in postponed state. But uh, like the bigger, the big goal for me is to make development using Rails joyful again. Because I'm a freelancer, I usually, I frequently switch from project to project. And I see that a lot of people, they... Inventing, inventing their own bicycles. I mean, remember those times when we had like single rails way. When we, we were all on the step one uh, of this mountain, We all were enjoying the process. and then we started like inventing uh, more approaches because like we all grew, our projects become bigger and more complex. We needed some other methods to manage complexity. But we ended up having like dozens of different approaches and there is no single unified way of doing that now. I think ideally uh, we should have one unified approach again that would fit to 90% of all projects. Of course, uh, like the domain models and uh, a lot of specifics is different, but I'm still pretty sure that for 90% of 90% of a project, for 90% of functionality of 90% of all Rails projects or web projects on Ruby, we can develop a single unified way. Like imagine if we could measure mathematically like a different approaches. Like with Trailblazer, we have a complexity ratio of I don't know five and um, some another metric of I don't know ten, and for another like vanilla rails, rails approach we have like those numbers of seven and six, and we could just compare those approaches and let's say, and this this approach is optimal. And while it sounds uh, pretty like fantastic, I would say, I still think think it's doable, and I can explain it. But, but it's going to take some time.
3: <laughs> so from my perspective, I think yeah. that that right there, that motivation to sort of like get the, I don't know, that there's, I, I look at this as sort of being a, a platonic thing, that there's, there's a perfect thing out there and we're all trying to go get it, right? We're all trying to mm-hmm. seek it. And I feel like that is sort of like the motivation that drives like half of the things that you see out in the world. You know, somebody's upset about Rails, you know, now we have what, Sinatra, Hanami, I mean, they're they're even on your mountain, right? Like they're so popular. Trailblazer is not exactly competitor rails so much, but but it's it's competing against like pieces of it, right? Uh, but like we have these things where somebody's like, I'm going to try and seek that one thing, right? Or you know, in JavaScript world, we have this like we have React now, we have Vue. Somebody's gonna come out with another, you know, framework. I mean, A- Angular is kind of like sort of on the wane. Ember's basically kind of gone. You know we're not even talking about the the generation before that right like that are just gone now like people are always like trying to recreate this bicycle
4: to achieve that one place I don't know that we can stop that cycle: I think um, there's always going to be more churn in the front end than the back end that wasn't my conclusion but you're welcome to make that conclusion
1: <laughs> so let, let me explain what I mean uh, sure and why I think it's it's achievable, well, at least theoretically. So, first of all, this uh, approach of expressing code in uh, pictures of little dudes. So, what ways to analyze our, our code we have right now? So, we have code coverage, for example. We have some complexity metrics with Flock or some other stuff with Ruby Critic, But th- those are just numbers. And let's say you have a class of 500 lines of code, and all right, you have a metric that your class has complexity of something like I don't know fifteen. And that doesn't give you like a lot of information you can work with. And uh, most of the like uh, tools give us very low-level hints on code quality, and we tend to think that. RuboCop uh, hints are about code quality, but uh, I think those are just about code style, mostly. And they can show you that something is wrong, but they can't give you a high-level hint. And now, uh, let's say we take uh, the same class of 500 lines, and when we try to express it with a picture of little dudes, we can have, like, here's our guy, And this guy, so since all the arms are are methods, let's say we have, uh, seven methods. So our guy has, uh, seven arms and we see like this and, uh, yeah, in my talk, I was showing like the, if the method is too long, then the arm is kind of long and wavy. And from that picture, you already see that it's not very good to have such an arm. It's not very convenient. And for another method, you have, uh, you have seven arguments there, and seven arguments are seven fingers. And the arm with seven fingers is not convenient also. And, uh, and so on and so on and so on. Like, and now you have this class and the properties of the code expressing in one little compact picture, and your brain is actually, um, well, it uh, works with, with visual objects much better when with the text and it takes you less time to, to understand properties of this picture and actually there is a thing called churn of faces and it's used uh, you can google for it and this is a technique when um, people used uh, faces uh, with different expressions to show multi-dimensional data for example you have a table with a lot of columns and you have to Mm, like, I don't know, it's something like it's showing some death rate or some uh, information about health in different states. And for example, death rate is expressed with the size of eyes and like, and I, I don't know, something else is expressed with the size of mouth and so on and so on. So, and this uses uh, parts of our brain which um, recognize faces And with this, you can get very efficient. And this I found very close, this churn of faces thing. And yeah, and what I found that if you use this this in Dynamics, so let's say we we have this picture of a 500 lines class, and then we get a pull request, which changes this class and maybe some others. Then we can have another picture. Then this arm is gone. Uh, this arm got two two new fingers, and this arm become longer, and and so on and so on. So now you can like very compactly you can see the what differences, what high 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 level differences were uh, added to your system. So this is uh, so
4: uh, that would be yeah. kind of part of some kind of. Continuous
1: integration system. Yes, correct. Actually, so two links I've sent to you, the one which called Dudes Hub. Uh, this is a prototype which is developed by my student, which already does that, actually. So you can plug it to your repository and it will start posting you pictures of those little dudes whenever you create pull requests.
3: Does it work on Ruby? It looks like it has a gem file on a cat
1: file. Yeah, it should work. I, I, unfortunately, I didn't have the chance to play with it a lot. And as I said, it's a prototype, but it should work. Okay, awesome.
2: Uh, let's see here.
1: Not sure. It looks like an app. All right,
3: well, we'll, we'll link it in the stuff or whatever to play
1: with. Oh, yeah. So the, the, the gem is the last one called UDT. And uh, Dudes Hub is, yeah, it's an app. Basically, it should be deployed first. to uh, uh, Yeah, but I think I should just do that so that you could be able to plug it to, to your repo. So they work together or something? Uh Dudes is a gem that you can plug to your repository. And uh, I believe it's a common line utility. And you can say, well, um, please... Uh, Express these classes as uh, those uh, pictures of little dudes, and you will get that. Gotcha. Yeah. And wow. DudeGL is the. Uh, yeah, it's the a library. Implementation uh, of it. Yeah, it's the core of the whole thing, which actually draws all those. Uh, uh, all sweet. Those dudes. <laughs> this can potentially change uh, a way of thinking about code complexity. And uh, of course, it's. it's it requires a lot of more research and uh, I don't know marketing. Sure, but yeah, I like it.
3: So it sounds like what you're arguing here. Please correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like what you're kind of making an argument for is that if you um, express uh, your code quality in this visual kind of language, you basically can uh, do, I think, two things. Uh, one, you're cutting down on noise. And two, you're, you're increasing bandwidth because we're using more parts of our brain to help kind of handle this or whatever. So you're communicating with more bandwidth.
1: Correct. Yes. I mean, the amount of information you can uh, express in one place is also important. Like, remember that our brain can handle only like seven, five to seven things in one like, byte. Like here, you because of the compactness, you can place like a decent amount of code and analyze it in one place, like on one picture.
0: Yeah, and I think that where I like this is the at-a-glance visual of where things are at. So, if I guess one of these little people or dudes, as it looks like they're called, if one of them has ten different arms that would essentially be like 10 different public methods that that class has, which... In a lot of cases, if you're creating a PORO, would not be ideal. So right off the bat, you could say, wow, this class has some serious complexity because you have 10 different entry points to be able to interact with this class. Maybe we should simplify it so it only has one arm at most two and then create other smaller classes to handle whatever the other methods, public methods were that this class was originally housing.
1: Correct, yes, that's a good example.
2: Have you thought about making a career transition into data analytics? You should check out Springboard's Data Analytics Career Track. It's similar to an online data analytics bootcamp, with the difference that a career track follows a project-based learning methodology where students work on real-life projects that employers are interested in. The program is 100% online, and each student is paired with a data analytics expert who provides unlimited one-on-one mentorship and support throughout the program via video conference calls. Springboard also offers job guarantees for all their career tracks. That means you don't have to pay for the program until you secure a new job in data analytics. Ruby Rogues is exclusively offering a scholarship of $500 to interested applicants based in the U.S. or Canada. Make sure to use the code Springboard when you enroll. There are only 20 scholarships available, and scholarships are awarded on a first-come, first-served basis. Check if you qualify by applying at devchat.tv dac the application is free and it takes 10 minutes. That's devchat.tv slash DAC.
1: I did similar thing in my talk in, uh, at RubyConf. I just took uh, another talk of Sandy Metz, where she, she was doing exactly that. She took one huge class and step by step, she split it into something like 15 smaller classes. And I, um, I basically illustrated the whole thing. So, and yeah, you, you, you can see it in, in the talk itself.
3: I mean, kudos to Sandy Metz for like kind of basically doing this for so long like and, and giving good talks, right, on it. But yeah, I, I definitely am, am coming around to the thing here that having a visual would make communicating about that stuff a lot faster. Because I think one of the things that I've definitely encountered is that while I have spent a lot of time Looking at talks, like Katrina Owen is also really good at this, right? Uh, but like watching talks uh, and reading about stuff, and I feel like I'm pretty good at identifying these things, you know, and I'll comment on them in PRs and things like this. I feel like it's a very hard thing, even for programmers who, you know, we were like, oh, programmers are smarter than the average bear, and therefore they should be able to, to get this stuff. But um, I, I think it's a hard concept for everyone. Maybe visual language would help overcome some of those barriers.
0: I know for me, it definitely would. And just take the example, this is kind of like off topic, but related, but like a, a Kanban board. A Kanban board usually has three columns, to do, doing, and done. And that's great for single flow tasks, tasks that don't require anything other than a to do, doing, or done. You have forgot the ta- most
4: important column, which is the won't do column.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, yeah. But, anyways, my problem with that kind of style is that you don't have a great visualization. Okay. So, this story that we have now developed this feature on, it's done. What does done even mean? Does it mean that it has gone through the proper code reviews? That it has past a QA checkpoint, that uh, it's been deployed, you know, what does that actually mean? So in a CIECD kind of world, where, or a more proper development lifecycle world, you have many more steps than just to do, doing, and done. And so I like my boards actually more visual where you do have several different columns, each column representing the next step for that story. So you're able to then see at a glance, okay, all of my work is done. There's no more expectations for me this sprint. Why don't I pull something else in or learn something or do something else? So that way there is no confusion of, oh, the story is done, but it's still actually waiting for a code review and waiting to get deployed to our staging environment. Something like that. So I see the visual aspect that we're talking about here with the little dudes uh, being very helpful in not only as a um, for new developers, but for seasoned developers to see at a glance, what is the current situation? Where are things currently at? How healthy is our actual code? What's, what's the status of our actual stories? Just that at a simple glance view, having... Knowledgeable and actionable information,
1: yeah, I think it can be also useful uh, if you wanna pass the knowledge about some system you're developing and like especially of some part of some of some tricky part of the system, uh, definitely you can draw it in this way, and then sh- first of all, you share in this picture and then you explain what it means it's like and Yeah, and this way you can get like a more compact way to to, to explain things. And I guess you can hope that people will understand it more correct. I hope that it will work this way.
3: I think so. I I definitely am really into this image thing. I think I also agree with you, Dave, right? I I agree. I have a a small critique, but I mostly agree about the Kanban board thing. I say because my Kanban board... I think everyone has a common board that like you make a trade off decision between having enough columns to actually capture all the states that you care about, you know, cause my kanban board is like seven columns big because you know uh, I'm focused seven. on, well, how, I mean, how
4: did you get the seven?
3: All right. So I have the, like the needs grooming column, <laughs> right. The, the actual backlog, you know, then you have in progress. Then I have an in review column, which means that, Hey, somebody else is supposed to like look at this thing and do, you know, do something, and then there's a ready-to-deploy column, and then there's a completed, and then, of course, the Icebox, right? Because you can't forget the ice box. R7. Okay, well, that visually, I have a large screen here, and that visually takes up the whole screen. If I'm on my laptop screen, I it's, think the seventh column is hidden, you know. That's It's a wide-screen
4: Kanban board. Right. But, anyway, so,
3: so I'm not trying to get too down in the nuts, but my point is, there is visual information being drawn from this but I think it's a stretched pro. Like, this is a problem where the, uh, the illustration is stretched too far, right? And I, I think that what is making me really comfortable about this code thing is, at least so far, I can't think of a way, right, in which this gets stretched. Like, I think, Yvonne, like you've captured basically most of the problems I can think of. So, we're just talking about a high bandwidth communication solution for something that's a problem
4: right now. It's just an easy sell, I think. Yeah, I mean, the potential is enormous. Ivan, I really liked your bit in your talk when you talked about the exceptions and how you visualize exceptions as a vomit.
1: Yeah, basically things go wrong. And uh, you should understand me that most of the things I haven't even tried to, uh, it was not, Hard, like they really drive you when once you get these basic laws of your universe, like you, you basically think, All right, and how this thing will look like, and like, yeah, it's, it's, it's obvious now, like,
4: <laughs> something yeah.
1: wrong, the guy should want it. <laughs>
4: that was really evocative, and what it immediately occurs to me is some kind of monitoring system combined the concept of the regurgitating exceptions with the dudes and uh you can assign the regurgitations to the dudes so you can see which classes are being physically sick i did just look through
3: the repo there's nothing about failing tests like and the guy throwing up it's it's
4: (laughs) not implemented yet well that's my weekend gone
0: In some ways, this reminds me of a gem that I played around with a while ago, several years ago, Rails ERD. But this has a much better at-a-glance visualization of communicating data and state of your Rails application. So I think it's really cool. I may check this out a bit further.
4: I do have some problems with it, Ivan. One of the things that struck me as odd was the methods with too many lines of code in them were depicted as swollen arms. So the methods of the arms already, and when they have too many things in them, they become swollen,
1: correct? Not exactly like this. So if, if the method is, uh, is long, then you have a long, wavy arm, ah. and your arm gets swollen if there is too many conditional logic in it. So it, it means mm. like... You get it right. <laughs> it's a complexity score. It's kind of so because so basically, this here it's used to uh, to demonstrate the nature of complexity. We this is what uh, what I uh, came to. So I think uh, with this uh, with this approach, you can show that there are two types of complexity. One of One is internal, where you have uh, like swollen arms, long arms, and uh, too many methods and too many internal methods. This is all internal complexity. And external complexity is where you have uh, small uh, classes, but you have tons of them. So basically, the point I was making in the end of my talk, after I illustrated Sandy Matt's talk, is that complexity actually didn't go away it just changed the form so and uh, so it was all internal complexity it was all in one single class and now we have 15 uh, classes and the complexity is now external so we managed uh, complexity in this way but sometimes you can have a lot of classes but it's still hard to to deal with those classes so it means you you've gone too far with your oop or like basically design, so that's that's the idea, and uh, I think that when we are saying that we want to write in like the good code, the whole question is about the balance between internal complexity and external complexity. So sometimes it's okay to have like conditions. Sometimes you have to split it into polymorphic classes, but that's that's up to you to decide. Yeah, I think I think
3: that's kind of what I was. Hinting at a little bit earlier, right? Like, I think it's very difficult for people to actually recognize and know where they've put their complexity, right? People are really quick to recognize, you know, fat controllers and fat models. But, like, underneath the hood, the reason why fat controllers or fat models bother us is because of, you know, okay, I have a ton of conditionals in all of my methods, or I have a million lines in every method, right? I'm basically writing imperative code inside my OOP box here. And uh, maybe, there's a different, maybe there's a different way to put that, right? Like maybe this method is super hard to test or something, right? Like there's a lot of reasons why you might want to move it out. And typically, I feel like we're like, look, if we can write easy tests, then this is pretty good code and I can maintain it or whatever. And that's sort of like our way to measure that our complexity isn't out of sorts. But yeah, I, I think the reason why this tool is awesome, the way that I'm understanding from you, Yvonne, is it's awesome because it makes it really quick to be able to communicate to somebody else, this is, where all the, this is, this is how all the pieces lie, right? Like, okay, there's a bunch of skinny, uh, skinny long arms or there's a bunch of fat long arms or there's just fat arms or whatever. Like, I suddenly am giving you a ton of information about where
1: you chose to put your complexity. Exactly right. And when I talking about the optimal way of developing application using some approach, like let's say Rails, I'm actually talking about this. So we can quantify the way we work. Like let's say if we like every requirement we get from the customer, uh, we uh, we can quantify in a way like here we should add a, a new entity. Like here we. We have a fork in business logic. Here we have uh, something else and something else and something else. And let's say we we we've done that. And also we can with uh, this visual approach we can quantify different uh, approaches like trailblazer approach, like Dryer B approach, Hanami and Rails, and I don't know Rails plus service objects. For every specific approach, you can say that. Um, all right, in Rails, I just uh, threw another condition in my controller, and I'll be fine. And you can visually see that, all right, this arm got, got bigger or got more uh, fat, fatter. And um, with another approach, with Hanani, I've added one repository, one uh, service, one class for my action, and I see that I, I, I've added another kind of complexity. I've added three more classes. And this way you can compare. So you can see that here we added internal complexity, here we added external complexity. And now, with this approach, we can measure for every typical feature we're developing. Of course, we, can, uh, we, can, we should really simplify this, but for theoretical weights, it, it should be enough. So. For this way, we get, we get uh, this amount of internal complexity, this amount of external complexity, and we now can now compare those numbers, so whatever those numbers are. And if we can compare those numbers, we potentially we can find this balance. We could find that optimal approach, which would add an uh, optimal amount of internal complexity and an op- optimal amount of external complexity. This is what I was talking about, actually, when I was talk- saying that uh, I think that it is still possible to find an optimal way of managing complexity in Rails applications or whatever web applications in Ru- written in Ruby. Well, actually, in any language, because it's, it's, uh, nothing limits its usage to, uh, to the language itself.
3: Sure. Assuming we put a value to like a dude versus a fat arm, for example. Once we have those values, then we should be able to compare them, right? So that's what
1: we're getting at here. Right, yeah. You basically visualize all the trade-offs you're doing. So we, you're ch- changing this thing for that thing. This is what you get.
4: It's a fascinating idea. I still think the, the complex methods, if the arms are big, people might like that because they like to have big arms. So they think that these aren't swollen methods. They're kind of muscular
1: methods. Well, if you add few more segments to the term, you don't like that. <laughs> you don't, you will not like it that much.
3: <laughs> yeah, go go look at uh, go get look at the images on Dudity or whatever. They look a lot less like swole arms, and they look more like I don't know resistors or like like those image those diagrams of uh, in like biology class of like the I don't know the sheath wrapping around your nerves or whatever whatever that's called. They don't look yeah, like
1: swole arms. Yeah, of course, as I said, it's a prototype, it's a very simplistic pictures, but yeah, they, they're still able to express the initial idea, I think.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, no sweat, I'm not critiquing, I'm saying that I don't think he has to worry about people confusing them for swell arms, I think we're good. Oh yeah. I think I'm going to add this to a project, legit, because uh, I mean, I have a project out there right now that I'm kind of working on, and uh, you know. I'm running RuboCop, Reek, and Rails best practices on it, and you know, I mean, it's a pain in the butt to test all three. Probably need a Dockerize the dude's hub thing, but yeah, I bet we could do, I bet you could do this.
1: Yeah, that would be great. I, I, yeah, and please give me some feedback.
0: Cool. Yvonne, hey, if people want to follow you and see what you're doing online, where should they go?
1: So, on Twitter, I, I'm I-N-E-M, I-N-E-M, I guess, and... Um, Yeah, I think it's a a good point. If you want to see other stuff I was working on, it's at. so you can see some other projects of mine, and yeah, that's it. And probably, of course, my GitHub projects
2: I was working on as well. Awesome. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer.
0: Luke, do you want to start us off? My pick,
4: because I've been doing it all week, is uh, Linode, the hosting company. Uh, I've been watching some of their videos from last year, which was, I think, their 19th anniversary. And the founder was pointing out that Linode is uh, an older company than Amazon Web Services for cloud hosting. So check them out, linode, linode.com.
0: Awesome. And John, do you have any?
4: I do. My first one is, is
3: sort of a mixed PSA slash, you know, rediscovery, whatever. Um, back when I was like super poor in college, you know, and working out was like too expensive. You know, uh, I, I did push-ups and sit-ups like all the time. That was the thing that I did. And, uh, you know, now that you have to be at home, you know, just like reminded. I've been doing my push-ups and sit-ups again. Um, I've actually been doing it for a few months, but, but I'm just like reminded of how awesome a choice that is since I, don't, I can't go out to work out anywhere else. So, so, yep, that was pick number one. I've got to ask, how many push-ups can you do? Uh, how many can I do or how many do I do every day? Because those are d- completely different numbers. Well I, well, I want to know both the numbers. Okay, well, I can do about
4: 50 or 60 in one go, which is, Good. I don't know, it's okay. God you're going to end up looking like one of Ivan's method people. I feel like if I looked like one of Ivan's method people, it would be harder for me to do those push-ups and sit-ups. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I do I do 20 in two sets every day. So, because you don't want to go to your limit, whatever. Anyway, I should, I should be jumping it up to 25 soon, I think. And I'm not feeling it yet. Okay, so the second thing that uh, I was trying to... But my second pick is um so I have an acre and a quarter and I'm backed up to some woods and and the whole area around me is very woody and stuff so I have lots of brush things that are hard to mow around I I live on a hill you know uh so like I can't I can't mow that hill at least not on a riding lawn mower um so I do I have you know a, a pretty heavy duty weed whacker you know and I've just like you know, I don't know. I bought the thickest uh, string that it could handle. Whatever, cool, great. Uh, but it it just what I don't know. It just broke all the time and everything. So anyway, the thing that I'm picking is like I bought a head to replace it, so that I could not only use thicker string, but that uh, like I bought a head that I uh, I cut off these eight inch strings and just like stick them in instead of having like a a reel that that bumps and then like i don't know stops working for whatever reason um anyway i've been super happy with the fact that i like replaced my head so i'm not saying you should do exactly what i did but i like looked up online how this stuff worked and i came away uh bought a head replaced it on my weed whacker and now instead of taking two and a half hours it takes two still a lot of time shaved about a half hour but like that's a half hour of like me being pissed because my string broke. So. Uh, it's totally worth it. Yeah, it's just been a better experience. So yeah, I don't know. Find the weed whacker head that works for you. That's,
1: that's my pick.
0: Cool. And Ivan, do you have any picks?
1: Nope. I actually didn't prepare anything. Okay. But, uh, well, I would say if you never tried, try using, if you're into VS Code, uh, try using VS Code Remote. I switched to this way of working like several months ago, so whenever I start new projects, I no longer uh, set it up on my local machine. I simply spin up um, another virtual virtual server on Linode, on Scaleway, some on Amazon, and set my stuff set up my stuff there, and simply work um, using VS Code remote work as it's in my. Uh, as it is on my local machine. So if you never tried that, I highly recommend it.
0: Cool. And I'll jump in with a few picks. So the first pick is the discount code learnfromhome on a site that I run, Drift and Ruby, which is a series of screencasts. I believe I'm up to over 230 now. So learn from home. And a second pick, as far as just talking about code quality and stuff, is a pretty cool gem called Reek, which will give you a nice kind of more of a table visualization, similar to what SimpleCov does, of all the different code complexity issues that you might have within your application. And a third pick, which is kind of more of an anti-pick, it's a love-hate thing, is I've been really diving a lot more into Kubernetes lately. And it's a lot of fun. I've been having some enjoyment doing it and then also a lot of frustration. So that's kind of a pick, anti-pick stuff.
3: We so. need to have another episode on, on, on that stuff so that you can talk about how your views have evolved or not evolved.
0: <laughs> well, uh, so I will say I am working on a pretty cool templating thing that I'm going to start all my new applications, not the ones that I do for Drift Ruby because I like came those Slim, but any application that I do personally, it's going to have the Docker Compose and Dockerfile built into the new Rails app. It's going to then also generate all of the YAML files for deploying that application over to a Kubernetes cluster that has an ingress enabled. So all you have to do is deploy it and it'll create a whole new environment. So... I've been playing around with that quite a bit lately
3: cool, but i'd also I'd give a thumbs up for Reek too. I do use it, and I do love it, right Um I just hate having multiple code quality checks in one tool, and I also don't want to go out there and pay for one either
0: and I think there's another one called Standard R b, something like that, which will actually do all of the linting changes for you and it's a pretty safe one I think test double made it can't remember it's been a while since I've seen it
3: yeah I vaguely recall it um, I'm just checking out it is standard RB. that is its name yep cool
0: alright well Yvonne I appreciate you coming on and talking with us and that's a wrap
1: thank you guys thanks for inviting me thanks for coming yeah thanks that was really really interesting
2: bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly the world's fastest CDN